For this episode of Making Sense of Science, I talked with Charles Brenner, a leading biochemist at City of Hope National Medical Center in L.A. Lately, Brenner caught my attention because he's been making it a priority to attend the largest longevity conferences with a main purpose in mind, to point out that most of the other speakers are full of it. Brenner is waging war against a handful of other scientists in the field of aging, accusing them of hyping various fountains of youth while lacking evidence. Another paper he published in September is called A Science-Based Review of the World's Best-Selling Book on Aging. In this paper, he pans the author of the book, David Sinclair, a Harvard biologist, for making a series of claims about the prospects for living longer, which, Brenner says, are not backed up by science. He also recently had an online debate with Aubrey de Grey, a prominent biomedical gerontologist who believes that humans can live much longer than we currently do. I'll put the link to that one in the show notes along with the links to Brenner's papers. In his own lab work, Brenner is credited with discovering a vitamin precursor that seems to enable repair of cellular damage that occurs as we get older, a discovery that he's turned into a supplement and commercialized with a company called Chromadex. Whether it's possible to extend human lifespan is a pressing question as investments in longevity startups are projected to increase from $40 billion to $600 billion over the next three years. The field of biological aging seems divided on the question of whether anti-aging therapies can significantly lengthen our natural lifespans. Brenner, Morgan Levine of Altus Labs, and Matt Caberlin of the University of Washington argue that the only realistic goal for anti-aging science is to extend one's window of healthy years, rather than try to break through the biological ceiling of our species. Brenner is an especially intriguing figure in these debates. He's frequently introduced in public appearances these days as the longevity skeptic, but as he told me, he thinks he's an optimist. I'm Matt Fuchs, and this is Making Sense of Science. really interesting to our audience and, and maybe a little bit um, uh, of a discussion topic with the leaps.org audience because I think a lot of the articles on sort of longevity topics get a lot of attention and they seem to get more attention than some of the other topics and so I imagine that this could be um, maybe a, a little bit of a different angle than they're used to uh, to seeing on longevity uh, which I think is great. People have been um, making up fantastical stories about longevity for thousands of years. Um, We credit um, a Greek named Herodotus uh, as the father of history. And in um, the very first opus that Herodotus wrote, he told of these... um, mysterious people, and he couldn't quite say where they lived, uh, but he said that they bathed in these waters uh, that were, you know, later terms, the fountains of youth, right? And uh, Herodotus never was able to tell us where those waters are and uh, certainly what the composition of those waters are, but it made a great legend. And um, unfortunately, um, people are still selling uh, that legend. Yes, and uh, definitely want to to dig into that and uh, sort of the uh, the legend aspect of uh, some of the hype around longevity. And uh, I think that you've maybe compared uh, some of the hopes and dreams for uh, longevity therapies to the tooth fairy, <laughs> which. Uh, Seems like it could be apt, definitely apt in the example you just named and some of our present day ones as well. But um, 
you know, I'm excited to talk about your important work uh, also on, uh, very relatedly on the processes related to nicotinamide, adenine, dinucleotide, or as we'll refer to it today, much to the relief, I think, of some of our listeners, maybe the NAD system, a little bit simpler, uh, which plays a critical role in the body that many may not be aware of. And it'll also be great to learn about your discovery that the that NAD can be made from nicotinamide riboside, or NR, uh, in many ways that NAD uh, system can get disturbed. Uh, and, yeah. and other contributions you've made to the study of metabolism, uh, and your, as we've mentioned, the very related thoughts that you have on longevity, healthy aging, extending one's window of health span, and your critiques of some scientists who are studying the, the biology of aging. So let's just um, set the table a bit for discussing the work you're doing. I'm going to give a quick definition of metabolism for our listeners. And I'll, I'll describe it as a the set of processes by which our bodies convert what we eat and drink into energy. And uh, please feel free by all means to edit that definition. And, and maybe you could share, why would boosting NAD be good for metabolism and repairing cells? It'd be great if you could give a, a fairly high level uh, explanation uh, for those in our audience who haven't uh, perused their cellular biology textbooks lately. Sure. Thank you, Matt. Well, um, the the type of um, definition that you've given is an important part of metabolism, which is converting everything that we eat into biological energy. But metabolism is actually more than that, because metabolism allows us to convert everything that we eat into everything that we are, because we have to make all of our own molecules, Right. And we have to make our own cells. We have to make and repair our own muscle. Inside of every cell, we replicate our DNA. We have to make RNA continuously. We have to make all the proteins, all the lipids. And all of that is metabolism, plus the repair of all of these molecules. And uh, NAD coenzymes are the central catalysts of metabolism and they allow us to not only as i said to generate biological energy in form of atp but to make all of the molecules that we're made of and our metabolism declines in 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 age our ability to repair ourselves uh, declines in age and the other thing that that we and others have discovered is that the NAD system comes under attack in many diseases and conditions, as well as in the process of aging. And you discovered that NAD, first of all, thank you for that very clear uh, explanation. And um, I, it, it is uh, such an important system and process. And your discovery in the context of that very important system is uh, especially critical that NAD can be made from nicotinamide riboside or NR. What is the evidence at, at this point that taking NR as a supplement could be a potential remedy for the various disturbances you referred to, to the NAD system that occur over the course of one's lifespan, such as, you know, inflammation, DNA damage, but just all, regular old sun exposure, or even, you know, sure. oxygen, breathing in oxygen. Great, great, great question. So um, the first thing that we did is establish safety. 
Um, so when uh, Chromadex uh, licensed the intellectual property from from Dartmouth, and so full disclosure, I was the inventor of the Dartmouth um, intellectual property on uses of nicotinamide riboside, having discovered the vitamin activity of nicotinamide riboside there. Um, Chromadex um, licensed the IP and developed a manufacturing process. And then we, <clears throat> we established safety, right? So my laboratory developed the ability to quantify um, the NAD system in human blood or in any tissue that you uh, want to want to analyze it in. And um, we've shown uh, very conclusively that there is a dose-dependent um, increase in human blood NAD um, that's not accompanied by serious adverse events. Um, we know that um, in placebo-controlled trials that um, people of multiple different ages, men and women, um, healthy or with a variety of, of diseases and conditions can elevate their NAD safely without uh, events. Um, in multiple trials now, um, NR has been shown to drive uh, lower inflammatory markers, and we think that that's a good thing. Um, inflammation is an attempt for your body to repair itself, but chronic inflammation is at the root of many disease processes. And then there have been um, some positive signals uh, detected in a number of trials. So there's a small Parkinson's trial that shows improved cerebral blood flow. Um, there was a trial that was done with older uh, type 2 diabetic obese men that did not achieve its primary endpoint of weight loss or insulin sensitivity. But when you look at the underlying data, you see that the men that had fatty liver, uh, nearly all of those men had their liver fat uh, uh, become uh, decreased by, by quite a significant degree. Um, and there, there are probably about 50 ongoing placebo-controlled trials uh, in combination with three other over-the-counter supplements, um, NR, accelerated time to recovery from COVID. That's something that was anticipated from our work in, um, in the laboratory. So we're really excited about um, the NR work going forward. Yeah, that, that's amazing. Uh, thank you for going over that research. I know that you know, some of what we know, maybe much of what we know is from animal research, but it seems like there have been some, you know, clearly some really promising studies that have been done in humans as well. And so I, I guess that, you know, leads me to kind of the question of who would this be for? And so, you know, in the context of chronic inflammation, Parkinson's, type 2 diabetes, um, there, may, there may be a benefit based on the research right that you're, uh, you've done. What about people who don't have, you know, some of these chronic conditions that might be in, you know, reasonably good health? Would there be any benefit or has there been research done on the potential benefits for there, people who don't have those conditions? Yeah, there, there is uh, qu quite a bit uh, of research. And um, again, to, to, to fully disclose, NR, Niagen, NR um, is sold as a supplement 
So it literally says on the bottle, not intended to treat a disease or condition. Um, I don't consider aging a disease, um, but it's a fundamental property of life. And as we go through life and we are exposed to oxygen, we're, our cells are exposed to uh, reactive oxygen species. As we go into the sunlight, we get DNA damage that challenges the NAD system. So there are a number of trials that are looking at a number of kind of wellness parameters. And there's other trials that we've proposed doing that will look at things like wound repair. So um, anecdotally, almost everyone that has taken Niagen notices that their fingernails grow faster. There's more, I actually shaved my head, but there's more um, hair growth, more uh, rapid um, hair growth, um, and that abrasions and cuts and scrapes seem to um, be uh, repaired much more rapidly. And so that's an area in which we think that we can do trials that would potentially demonstrate faster recovery from cuts and scrapes. Um, but, you know, there, 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 there are a number of um, serious uh, diseases in which there may be an NR use case as well. So NR can prevent um, heart failure in a mouse model, and it's a very active research area in, in human heart failure, um, largely at uh, University of Washington, some folks that I'm, um, you know, I've observed their work. I'm not involved in their work directly. And there's others at UT Southwestern that are also very interested in looking at the activity of NR in uh, prevention or treatment of heart failure. But in terms of wellness, um, it's a very commonly used pro product. And um, from, you know, 20-year-old athletes in contact sports to, you know, weekend warriors, uh, you know, like myself. Like yourself, so you so you use NR. I was the first person to take to take NR because I was the first person that had access to it. So that was just for I thought that was temporary experimental purposes, but it's not, uh, maybe I misinterpreted. So you you do regularly take it now? Yes. Oh, oh, that's interesting. So um, is this beyond you know the shaved head? I guess that's <laughs> not going to work for that. But have you noticed uh, these types of um, Benefits? Well, you know, I don't personally um, think it's a great idea for um, for for scientists to, uh, you know, dwell in the anecdotal, right? Sure. Yep. But um, and you know what it did for me or my dog or something like that or my, <laughs> you know, ailing um, parents. But I'm, you know, like many people that have taken NR that experiences what I believe to be faster uh, recovery from workouts and, you know, resistance to um, common cold. Um, many of the people that uh, are around me did, you know, were got through the pandemic, you know, quite quite well in terms of um, not a lot of uh, infection or, or illness. But, you know, th these are these are basically hypothesis generating ideas. 
And in order to really establish treatment, you know, use cases, you've got to do RCTs. And like I said, there's probably about 50 RCTs that are in, in progress now. Yeah, that that's really sounds incredibly promising. It seems to me like there is, so we talk about this in the context of health span and healthy aging. And it seems to me like there's a split between researchers who think the lifespan of our species is biologically capped at, oh, let's say 122 years, and those who think we can exceed this limit. Is it your sense that this represents a fundamental division between researchers who explore the biology of aging? Or are those who claim that we can extend lifespan in the minority, but it just seems like there are many more of them because the people who claim we can extend lifespan tend to get more attention and ink in uh, places like newspapers and magazines? Um, Well, let me just, you know, not make comments on on other, you know, scientists and, and other people's claims, but just tell you what we understand about animal longevity, which is that um, every species of animal um, does appear to have, you know, a genetically encoded uh, maximal lifespan and that it's highly polygenic. It's not like there's very small number of dominantly acting longevity genes. The people that make those kinds of claims are are essentially completely evidence-free. Um, but um, essentially the way, uh, the way I describe um, animal lifespan is that it's an emergent property of selected traits and that it's not a selected trait itself. So what I mean by that is that um, animals have experienced um, selection to basically kind of like be born, right? And to gain mobility and the ability to feed themselves and to avoid predation, which requires a lot of executive brain function and and uh, musculature and circulatory system, and then to identify a mate and then to successfully reproduce. And then beyond that, animals kind of diverge in whether they have evolved towards high fecundity, which means having lots and lots of babies, and or having a lot of caretaking of a smaller number of of babies. Those are all selected traits. So uh, size, power, uh, famine resistance, um, intelligence, those are all selected traits. But um, longevity, which involves the ability to maintain health beyond uh, reproductive maturity is not a directly selected trait. So, for example, um, foxes are usually um, born in the spring, right? And they can reproduce essentially in the same calendar year in northern uh, hemisphere. And so a fox that lives less than one year can reproduce and give rise to its gene set. Now, a fox that can um, that can live six years can probably reproduce six times, right? And so, yes, it's going to pass its gene set on to more baby foxes, but that may be largely a function of how clever it is and how ability it is to avoid predation. And the fact of the matter is, 
that a fox can that can live less than one year will reproduce. So the gene set is really selected for reproduction. And the gene there, so the idea that there are quote longevity genes is quite misleading. There are genes that when mutated can give rise to longer lived worms and mice and, and rats. But those worms, mice, and rats are actually infertile. So it's it's actually the dwarf mice are the most powerful set of uh, long-lived rodents. And they live much longer than regular rodents, but that's because there are genes involved in growth hormone signaling that are mutant that give rise to these small animals that can't really fend for themselves and are infertile. Right. Um, that, 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 that's a really interesting distinction. So it makes me think of the grandmother hypothesis, which is that women outlive their reproductive cycles so that they can support their daughters and children and uh, having more children uh, so that the grandmothers can still be around to take care of okay. the, the additional children, right? Point, Matt. Okay. So in general, males and females in a species um, generally don't outlive their reproductive potential. So, um, so if um, mice live for two years, um, they can achieve, you know, reproductive capability at like 12 weeks or so, and um, can largely maintain some reproductive capacity throughout their life. It declines, okay? Now, um, and human men... Um, may peak in sex appeal at, you know, 20 or something. You'll have to ask around and find out what the consensus is on that. But men will maintain a sperm count and some reproductive capability throughout their lives, okay? Women, as you pointed out, live half of their life beyond the point at which they are fertile, right? So, but menopause turns out to be quite a human unique phenomenon. And, and it indicates the fact that um, women have been so important in human reproduction that the human gene set basically uh, makes all of a woman's eggs available from roughly the age of 15 to 45 or, or 50, and then allows the woman to still be quite healthy for another 45 or 50 years, right? And um, But that's because human babies are so inept at getting their own food and protecting themselves and so forth that um, older women and grandmothers, as you pointed out, have been essential for the survival of the human species. But that's, um, now we're talking real biology, real evolutionary biology, where there are particular genes that are in particular, uh, you know, genetically encoded processes that are encoded by a large number of genes that promote functions that are selected for, right? And so if you, start looking for genes 
or alleles of genes that are enriched in um, centenarians, you're, what, you're not finding single genes that by themselves are believed to con- confer large increases in, in lifespan. You're seeing a, an excellent gene set, but the gene set has to promote brain function, heart function, skeletal muscle function, respiratory function, everything, you know, infection resistance and so forth and so on. So the idea that there are single dominantly acting genes that uh, were identified in, let's say, yeast that are found in humans that confer longevity is simply evidence-free. And so the people that have you know, promoted those ideas um, have, you know, are widely, you know, uh, reported w- th- th- those ideas, but those ideas are not based upon what we understand about human health. And in fact, the genes that were nominated as dominantly acting longevity genes, like the sirtuin genes, are not even conserved as longevity genes in yeast, worms, flies, or mice. And so there's been a great deal of overstatement of the genetic basis for longevity. I do believe that um, the that there's likely to be a pretty firm limit to what a human being can do with our gene set. But that but I also think that it's a perfectly reasonable um, uh, goal to get more people healthier into their 80s, 90s, and you know, to 200. Um, whether we're going to get people that live beyond 120 or so is not at all clear to me. Yeah, so if I could just double click on that, uh, this is a point of confusion I often have. So help help steer me back and <laughs> onto the right track. Because if someone is genetically blessed to live to say 122 years old, which we think is the record for humans, and because let's say they take NR for several decades during their lives, and that is promoting healthy aging. Does that not help them increase the odds that they could get to not 200, not 150, but we're talking about like a hard ceiling on the species. Are, are you saying that the ceiling is somewhere within 122? And so even if you took, you know, something that is going to promote healthy aging for some substantial part of your life, it's it could increase past what we think is the ceiling, but not substantially is that so we're we're speculating here obviously sure and um there's no way to do the trial that you're you know talking about um plus you have a you know counterfactual involved there that we know who this person is that has the beautiful gene set and and you know now you want to have almost like a twin study of them where you know one is supplementing and and one isn't. Um, I think the way uh, something like uh, NR, you know, works is that um, 
because as we go through life, we experience episodes of, of, of uh, metabolic stress and metabolic disruption, whether it's an infection, a sunburn, um, or, you know, some broken bones and things where the metabolism had to be kind of rerouted to, to uh, promote repair. I think that uh, NR potentially allows you to get through those episodes better. But um, especially because we can't do the trial that you're, you're suggesting uh, we would need to do, um, you know, I wouldn't be willing to call NR a longevity drug. Could, could, but could you could you could you just give NR to people who are over a hundred and follow them to see if they live past the what we thought was the ceiling? I mean, I, in terms of operationalizing, not to say that would be easy, but and I just I'm sure that that's a lot harder than I just made it sound. But I mean, is, is well, there no way to? So it has to be placebo controlled to be, you know, to 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 be to have value. I used the term RCT earlier. I realized. I, I, I probably should have spelled that out. That means randomized control trial. So you have to um, be randomizing a population of people uh, for which, you know, you expect to get similar outcomes. And then um, that you have to control for the placebo effect where you say, oh, you know, you're enrolled in a study in which we think that something can promote aging just being enrolled in the study and taking a placebo could potentially do something for, for, for people. Um, and um, so you have to have a, you know, placebo controlled trial. Now, you know, maybe the a trial of centenarians makes more sense than a trial of, you know, 61 year old guys like me, because, um, their life expectancy is, you know, considerably worse, right? Um, so you should be seeing, you know, a substantial percent of deaths per per year if people are already 100 or 110. Um, so you potentially could get a signal in, in, in that population, but, you know, those people are, you know, probably doing a lot of things right. So, um, there's probably not a lot of people that are, um, you know, drug addicts, alcoholics, um, that, uh, play with handguns, uh, that, uh, don't get vaccinated, you know, in those populations. I think that they're, they're probably people that, um, you know, have access to good food, clean water, and that prioritize sleep and that do all the other things that, um, that healthy people do in order to maintain their, their health. Um, you know, the question is, you know, what does NR do on top of that? And I, I think the answer is potentially it promotes a lot of repair processes. Right. Um, speaking of NR, I do want to get back to NR and ask about the relationship um, that's been talked about in some places, some researchers uh, between NR and cancer. Uh, and from what I understand, um, there's some subset of people um, who maybe taking NR wouldn't be good for them because, you know, cancer cells could potentially thrive off of additional NAD flooding the system. But is, is there, um, am I describing that correctly or am I overstating, you know, the potential for that to happen? 
so, you know, the, the thing is, as I said earlier, um, you know, NR is not to treat a disease or condition right now. It's, it's a wellness product. And, you know, when people that have disease and conditions, we tell them, ask their doctor. And so I, as a PhD scientist, I'm not going to, you know, tell uh, people, you know, what to do. Um, that said, we know that in very large uh, population studies that were done in Australia, that nicotinamide, which is the nearest thing to nicotinamide riboside, uh, was associated with lower skin cancer risk over multi-year trials, um, that there are animal studies in the context of liver cancer, breast cancer, and maybe some others in which um, NR has some anti-cancer activity. Um, in a rat trial that was done by um, Donna Hammond at University of Iowa, um, who's interested in the effect of NR in prevention and reversal of neuropathy. Um, she saw no increased, you know, cancer um, when um, she was inducing carcinogenesis in rats. And so generally, you know, we think that NR is safe and helps um, cells repair DNA and so it would be largely expected to be, you know, a healthy thing. But um, whether there could be some rare tumors that uh, would, uh, like, depend upon supplemented NR, it's possible. Um, I can't exclude that possibility. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, I mean, thinking about, you know, again, the question of who is this for, um, that's just a question that, that seems relevant. Um, it seems like maybe, you know, there, we're... we're Maybe we need more research on, on that yep. question yep. at the bottom of it. Um, I want to talk about maybe sort of like optimism versus skepticism. These <laughs> are like words that uh, I, uh, I see uh, in, in, in describing, in, in the context of Dr. Of you, uh, in uh, certain descriptions. I've, I've seen you introduced in a couple of uh, public appearances as a quote-unquote longevity skeptic. Um, but I've also uh, listened to one of at least one of your interviews in which you described yourself as an optimist. Um, mm -hmm. Which description do you think is more accurate and why? Well, um, I think that I, I mean, I tried to be, you know, rigorously honest about um, the state of evidence for everything, including uh, nicotinamide riboside. And, um, you know, I, I've uh, thrown a lot of cold water on the idea of uh, sirtuins as uh, conserved longevity genes. I think that the verdict is in and they're not. Um, I've um, not worked with resveratrol myself, but there's a massive literature showing that um, it's not a cert one activator and, you know, uh, it's not bioavailable in humans and, there's no use case for it. Um, I do think that um, that animal longevity and human longevity is highly um, polygenic, and um, so I don't. That means that I don't think that CRISPR changes that much for you know human longevity interventions because if we had a dominantly acting you know longevity gene, then we could CRISPR it into ourselves, right? But um, since it doesn't really work that way, 
And um, it's thousands of genes working together that are allowing dozens of organ systems to work better through multiple decades beyond the point at which they were selected to work, which is reproduction. Um, you know, I don't think that CRISPR changes that much. So there are things that that people overstate that I tend to throw a lot of uh, cold water on. On the other hand, um, I love doing science and we find new and important things every month in the laboratory. And so overall, I'm, I'm optimistic about science to help us solve problems. Um, I think we got through the coronavirus pandemic, you know, in, in the developed world anyway, um, relatively better than we might have, largely because of vaccine technology, which was decades in the, in the making. And so, yeah, I'm an optimist about science. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm observing the fact that um, human lifespan has been, you know, doubled in the last uh, better part of a century, but that's largely due to public health um, improvements. And uh, I don't yet see um, the, I, I, I see the, the promise of longevity medicine as being somewhat um, overstated by by people that um, have a particular, you know, agenda. Like in the area of uh, partial reprogramming, for example, you know, this is fascinating, uh, amazing technology. And we've known that um, we can reprogram uh, adult somatic cells ever since the time of Dolly cloning, right? And, and you know, before Yamanaka factors, and we know uh, that Yamanaka factors are a way to take a somatic cell back in identity to induce pluripotency. But what what is usually not explained to people is that when we take cells in the laboratory and we induce pluripotency with them, we're getting a lot of non-behaving cells. So we're getting cells that die, we're getting cells that turn into tumors, we're getting cells that turn into teratomas, and we get rid of all of those things. And we can isolate and select. That's what clone means. We can clone, you know, individual cells that have induced pluripotency. And then we can take those and we can program, you know, their cell fate and so forth. But the, there's a long difference between doing that and in vivo partial reprogramming, where you're putting Yamanaka factors, three or four Yamanaka factors, into an animal for some amount of time. And... Um, you know, just hoping that bad things don't happen. And no one has ever done that in a blinded experiment with hundreds or thousands of animals to assess the safety of it. And so it's it's largely an overblown, you know, scientific claim right now. Yeah, I think that that's a really valuable role that you're playing to sort of, you know, apply appropriate scrutiny to um, some of these ideas that... Um, seem promising in theory, but just don't have the research to, you know, justify maybe the, the hype that uh, uh, surrounds the, uh, the, um, the, the, the strategies and therapies. And I saw your, your quotes in the MIT Technology Review article that um, were, um, you know, scrutinizing epigenetic reprogramming. And um, I, I guess I'm curious in that context, you mentioned like, you know, the, the rapid pace of innovation with the vaccines. 
Um, I wonder, like, uh, I assume you're aware of ARPA-H, which is President Biden's yeah. agency for um, health, sort of patterned off of DARPA, but it applied to health innovation. Would you want to see healthy aging or, you know, whatever we want to call it, you know, maybe health span um, be a priority for that agency or, or even even longevity or um or do you would you prefer for the that those dollars which could be massive amounts to go to specific diseases like cancer heart disease some of the uh, intractable chronic diseases that um that we face as a, a country and, and a world um so you're inviting me to get in trouble uh again here um so um i'm not i'm not certain i i want the ideas to be um to be really good ideas and I want them to have clear go, no go decisions. So I, as I understand it, you know, ARPA H um, wants to, you know, fund research and development, you know, of technologies that can improve human health. And um, so the critical thing is that, um, that hypotheses have to be falsifiable and the premises on which uh, research is based um, have to be um, sound. And so if someone has an approach that they think can target uh, the process of aging um, itself, then um, they need to you know, design an experiment to test that. Um, you know, I was you know, in a conversation about a year ago in which someone uh, told me, well, you know, Brenner, you don't really, you're a good scientist, but you don't really get uh, what we're trying to do here because lifespan extension is an engineering problem. And so we're more like the Wright brothers. And uh, I actually know something about the Wright brothers and the, the Wright brothers very much had falsifiable hypotheses. Every uh, component in the flying machine that they built was tested more often than not in a wind tunnel uh, before it was assembled, you know, into an airplane. And they rejected hundreds, if not thousands of different designs of all the different components of the things that they were building, as opposed to what uh, some people in, in the you know, lifespan ex extension space uh, say is that, oh, we are going to build these different things. And after we put these two or three things together, then we're going to start seeing effects. And I, I just don't think that that's the way to go. You have to, um, you know, question your own ideas and you have to, this is the way pharma does things. You have to um, design experiments that will really demonstrate the value of a particular idea. And if, if an idea is going to fail, you want to try to design experiments that will have it fail fast so that you can put resources into other ideas. So, you know, I, I the things I've learned about ARPA-H is that, you know, they're likely to be rather interested in cancer, diabetes, and Alzheimer's, um, which I think are three, you know, worthy uh, health uh, spaces. Um, if someone wants to make an argument that, uh, that we, can, we can help more people, you know, not get 
uh, cancer, diabetes, and and Alzheimer's by working on the process of aging. Uh, I'm not opposed to that idea, but I want their ideas to be falsifiable. Sure. No, that, that makes lots of sense to me. And I, I, I actually, um, I think that makes, you know, it's a very compelling argument um, because, you know, it seems like it is really hard to design these falsifiable um, sorts of um, approaches to longevity therapies. Um, and speaking of that, uh, I did want to bring up your your paper, which uh, came out in August, I believe, uh, which you review the data on sirtuins, which you've alluded to a couple of times. Uh, you say in your paper that Carl Sagan taught us that extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Um, and I, I, I guess I want to kind of uh, ask about both sirtuins and resveratrol. Uh, is, is it basically like the fundamental difference of opinion that you have with, um, you know, the, a researcher who's, you know, well-known for his thoughts on sirtuins, David Sinclair, that sirtuins, he claims the sirtuins are susceptible to manipulation and you disagree with his belief that we have evidence that sirtuins can be manipulated. Sirtuins can be manipulated, but they, you know, they're not longevity genes. So even if you go back to yeast, there's two different ways of measuring um, lifespan in yeast. One is the amount of time that cells stay alive, right? Which is what we're interested in, right? So the, the idea of living, you know, 120 years rather than 90 years, that's, you know, a third, you know, 30 over 90 is a third longer lifespan, right? Um, and um, it turns out that um, when you delete the SIR2 gene, when you delete the SIR2 gene in yeast Saccharomyces cerevisiae, you get longer lifespan. So David Sinclair will never tell you that um, because it goes against his narrative, but that's a fact. It was published by Walter Longo, Fabrizio and Longo in 2005. Um, the assay in which Sinclair and Grinty and their co-workers showed that extra copies of SIR2 extend lifespan only extends the lifespan of about one in five million cells. Now, I would need a whiteboard to explain this whole thing out to you, but, but the way that that experiment is done is that individual what are called mother yeast cells are arrayed on a Petri dish and their daughter cells are removed over the course of days or weeks. And it's only after about 21 generations of the cell divisions in which the oldest mother cells have, you know, an advantage in dividing a few more times. But um, that's one out of five million cells. So the idea that a yeast gene that advantages one out of five million uh, mother cells, but disadvantages the entire culture it disadvantages the entire culture in living a longer time. The idea that that gene is a gene that all the way back from yeast anticipated the causes of aging in animals is mind blowing. And uh, the actual data in which uh, extra copies of SIR2 were reported to extend lifespan in worms and in flies turn out to be non-reproducible. 
And then people went into mice when they thought that uh, the sirtuin overexpression in flies and worms did extend lifespan. Before those papers were debunked, people went into mice and tried to get lifespan extension in five different labs. And basically, if you look at the data in those papers, CERT-1 overexpression does not extend lifespan. So the people that are saying that, you know, sirtuin overexpression extends lifespan either don't know what they're talking about because they haven't looked at the data very carefully or are trying to mislead. It's one or the other. And there's a huge amount of hype and uh, model bias and uh, positive result bias that went into this whole 25-year fiasco. So, um, you know, billions of dollars, maybe in, into 10 billions of dollars have been put into the the sirtuin idea. And uh, it's not a, a conserved longevity gene, even in yeast cells. So it's mm -hmm. high time that we, and now it, it, it is, you know, a seven gene products in humans that have something to do with the NAD system. But again, the idea that sirtuins are the primary mediators of NAD boosting is also evidence-free. And, and in your paper, you describe errors made by scientists that led to false claims about sirtuins as stemming from framing bias, confirmation bias, hype, um, greed, you know, I, I think yeah. is, is implied. Um, Rightly, it seems. Uh, do you think these are general problems in scientific research today? Do you have thoughts about how these issues can be addressed in the future? Do you think that they're more prevalent in you know the field that that you're that you're that we've been discussing the uh, longevity? Or we have a term in you know in modern uh, bioscience uh, research where we talk about CNS journals. It means cell nature science. So kind of the most prestigious uh, journals. And um, they're looking for really exciting, you know, uh, articles, right? They're looking for, um, they're, they're not very likely to publish a paper showing that extra copies of a gene doesn't ext extend lifespan, right? Extra copies of a gene um, extending lifespan is exciting. Why? Because CRISPR, right? If you were to find a, you know, a gene that has extra copies that will extend lifespan, uh, in a mouse, you know, then you could try CRISPRing it into, you know, um, monkeys. And, you know, if you got a positive result there, you could change human medicine in a, you know, remarkable way. And, um, so there, there's a, um, a, an asymmetry uh, between the upside of a positive result and the non-plus nature of uh, negative results. And um, so it turns out uh, Nature did publish a paper uh, showing that fly and worm sirtuin gene overexpression doesn't extend lifespan. But they did that in 2011 which was like 10 years after the initial reports that in, in, in worms that extra copies of SIR2 do extend lifespan. So it was not in, in individuals from, you know, nine different institutions, like amazing scientists like 
uh, David Gems and Linda Partridge working with, with folks from seven other institutions show that sirtuins don't extend lifespan in, in flies and worms. But that's 10 years after a drumbeat has been going on saying that they do. And, you know, companies have been formed already um, to try to exploit this and develop human medicines that were based upon this. And so, you know, it is a problem. Certainly, there are financial incentives, but even there are, you know, fame and fame incentives and um, the excitement incentives of getting additional, you know, research funding if you were able to demonstrate these kinds of positive results. So it's very important that scientists blind our experiments and that we test our hypotheses and we do important things like, you know, if you were to find that in a primary assay that it looks like resveratrol activates a certain one, you know, the very next thing that you're supposed to do is determine whether resveratrol interferes with the assay in which you measured certain one activity as opposed to activates the enzyme. You know, that's the experiment that wasn't done by David Sinclair. It was done by others. Every molecular biology knows their molecular biologist knows the result of that experiment, which is that resveratrol disturbed the assay, right? And doesn't activate um, CERT-1. So in, in my lab, you know, when we identified, um, you know, enzyme inhibitors, which are much more common than enzyme activators, but if we identify activators or inhibitors, the very next thing that we do is we try to disprove it. Like, is it some way in which it could be an artifact? Is it some way that it's interfering with the assay and not having the direct effect that we think it is? So those are very, very important things to, to, to check. And, you know, they have to be done dispassionately, where as a scientist, you accept the result. And, you know, you don't want to just push your narrative and say, oh, yeah, these, this, you know, resveratrol is going to be a type 2 diabetes medicine that as a side effect is going to allow people to live longer. That was something that was published in the New York Times. Why? Because scientists said that to the New York Times writer. And, you know, it's, it's, hard, to, it's hard to get um, the genie back into the bottle, right? Once, once you know, the scientists go, go off and they, they speculate on their, their wildest fantastical dreams and then the New York Times, you know, amplifies that. And then every other, you know, outlet, you know, has their spin on it. You know, now you can go into a bookstore and you can see the cert food diet and you can see all kinds of things that are nonsense. I'm glad that you brought it back to your lab because, I, you know, I imagine some people listening, they might uh, observe that Chromadex is selling Trunigen as a supplement for cellular repair to ensure that cells um, have uh, essential aging, or I think I, I saw like have gas in the tank is uh, the way it's described maybe on the, the website, just purely in terms of, you know, having a product um, that's based on a, a, a supplement um, that is still being researched to some extent, right? Um, maybe some might compare your work with Chromadex to other researchers who've gone to market with products claiming to support 
healthy aging, like, you know, maybe like what Eric Verdon is doing with juvenescence and cellular therapies. Um, but how would you describe how your work with Chromadex is different? Is it what you just said that you've done much more to try to disprove your theories dispassionately? There's just much more research. We, we took the product off the market, actually, when we saw, you know, more human, human data on it. So um, Chromadex, uh, once upon a time, had uh, the patents for terastilbene, which is a resveratrol-like molecule. It's actually more stable than resveratrol. And um, I think terastilbene, um, you know, is found in blueberries. And um, there was a patent on a preparation of terastilbene called TeroPure. And uh, it was sold as an ingredient to other companies. And, you know, it was making money for, for the company. And we saw, you know, data that in, in which people in two different um, clinical trials, one terastilbene alone and one terastilbene with nicotinamide riboside, and we saw in both studies that there appeared to be a dose-dependent, time-dependent increase in low-density lipoprotein cholesterol, bad cholesterol. And, um, you know, I went directly to the, to the CEO and the general counsel at the time, and I said, I don't see this being a health-promoting product. And, um, you know, I, 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 I can't get behind continuing to sell this stuff. So, you know, that's called a falsifiable hypothesis, right? Is that when you see data that indicate that something is um, moving, you know, biomarkers in the, in the wrong direction, and, and, and LDL cholesterol is not just a biomarker, in fact, it's a driver of, you know, atherosclerosis. You can, there's nothing wrong with um, making discoveries in the laboratory that can be commercialized to improve hum human health. You know, arguably, it's what every single person writing an NIH grant um, will say is that by doing this research, we'll find new drug targets or we'll find new approaches to prevent or treat diseases. I was minding my own business, working on an enzyme in yeast when, you know, we discovered the nicotinamide riboside kinase pathway and discovered a new, you know, vitamin activity of, of NR. And um, I didn't you know, anticipate at the time that it was going to be a product for, that was, you know, useful for, for human beings. Um, and I don't think it invalidates my work, the, the fact that, you know, it, it now is in clinical testing for, you know, so many different disease and conditions. So the thing is, though, you have to follow the data, right? And you have to dispassionately look at what the data are telling you, and you have to do experiments that are capable of giving you a, you know, a negative answer, which is why I don't like, you know, trials that don't have placebos. And um, so, you know, that's basically the guiding principle of our laboratory. Dr. Brenner, uh, we are past the amount of time that I think we had planned for. Uh, do you have time for uh, to go uh, a few minutes more? That's fine. Great. Thank you. I do want to bring it back to a, a personal note. Um, it's always sort of interesting to ask uh, sort of like, you know, uh, personal views on, on uh, to such topics uh, of scientists who are, who are studying, uh, you know, interesting, uh, really important work. So. Um, 
you know, say hypothetically, uh, I'm going to ask you to suspend uh, disbelief a bit that uh, an anti-aging therapy was shown to work and uh, to, to allow you to live to age 125. Would you take it? And what, what would be your ideal lifespan? I don't think I want that question. I don't have an answer for it. Um, I, I, I can't, I can't deal with that counterfactual because, um, actual drugs, you know, have mechanisms of action and, you know, potential side effects and stuff like that. So I don't really encourage that speculation and I don't, I don't have a way of answering that question. Yeah, no, I, I totally understand. I'm just thinking, so a couple of my questions were hypothetical based. I may be able to deal with some hypotheticals better, better than that one, but you know, I, I can't. Sure. No, I, you I, know, understand. Um, I think I might tweak my hypothetical and, and just ask uh, my next hypothetical. If you think that there's a role for people with other backgrounds outside of science to weigh in on whether we should be studying um, therapies that are anti, quote unquote, anti-aging, or even um, therapies that would promote healthy aging and promote um, the ability to live um, longer windows of life, maybe into, maybe the, the average age um, could uh, eventually be significantly higher than it is even while staying underneath the the ceiling uh, of uh, the human species. Do I think there's a role for ethicists? Exactly, and- philosophers um, to- who, who frequently do uh, try to uh, uh, weigh in, uh, regardless of the permission of, of scientists on uh, on these questions. And they, they do, they are asked, you know, what their views are. Do you think that they... Uh, have a, a voice, an important voice in, in these questions? Yeah, I think that I think that everyone has a voice. And um, you know, if it's if it's federally, you know, funded research, I think that we need to have a conversation about, you know, where where the funds should go and you know how much goes into discovery research, how much goes into um, clinical research in various uh, disease areas, prevention, uh, nutrition, public health, all of those things. And, and I, absolutely, I, I think that ethicists have a, a role to play in, in those questions. Excellent. Um, Dr. Brenner, that is all of my questions. It's been really uh, terrific speaking with you and learning from you. Thank you again uh, for the opportunity to, to talk with you. Um, and uh, discuss your important work on NAD and NR and uh, all of the different ways that it can be perturbed and, you know, and hopefully um, addressed uh, in, in uh, potentially taking um, NR uh, as a supplement. Um, where can uh, people find out more about you and your work? So people can follow me on Twitter at Charles M. Brenner. Um, they can um, go to my lab web page, which is brennerlab.net. And um, I'm speaking at a bunch of conferences in coming months, and I'm, I'm sure that I'll provide uh, links to those on, on Twitter. Excellent. Uh, well, thank you again, and I uh, really, really appreciate the opportunity. Okay. Thank you, Matt.
Thanks for listening to the Making Sense of Science podcast. If you like the show and you want to hear more from the best thinkers of our time to help make sense of the latest health innovations and their impact on our rapidly changing world, please hit the follow button. And in the meantime, please visit our online magazine at leaps.org, where you can read in-depth articles examining health breakthroughs through the lens of rational optimism. Enjoy the leaps.org platform, and I hope you take care. Until next time.